Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. We met with a estate attorney when we had no estate. (laughs) There's nothing to meet about. There's no money. (laughs) So who's going to get all the nothing? But we did that and it was a way of also talking about, I was pregnant at the time. Like, what are the worst case scenarios? Not just for you, but for me, for our kid. We had all of those conversations. We had all the medical power of attorney conversations, all the end of life conversations for myself, for him. Those are things that people in their 30s don't talk about. Typically, they don't. And you don't know when you will be faced with making a decision for the person that you love. And it is better to know. It is better to know. And is it a wonderful conversation to have? No, but I will also say it is one of the most romantic things that you can do for and with one another. And to like put yourselves in the feet of a potential future versions of yourselves and say, if this horrible thing happens, then what? Hello there, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified as their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And this week, I'm in conversation with best-selling author and podcast host, Nora McInerney. So Nora has written extensively about her experiences with grief and loss, mainly based on the fact that she miscarried a child and she lost both her father and her husband to cancer all within several weeks back in 2014. And then in an effort to process what she was going through with her husband, she started a blog called My Husband's Tumor, which eventually grew to about a couple of hundred thousand followers. And then that became the basis of her first book, which is called It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too. And that was written six months after her husband passed away. And then later she released other books, No Happy Endings, Bad Moms, Hot Young Widows Club, and most recently she released Bad Vibes Only. Nora is also the host of Terrible Thanks for Asking, which is her uber popular podcast that lets people be honest about the hard things in life. And, you know, when hearing the titles of her books and her podcast, it kind of sounds like Nora is a bit of a downer, right? But that's kind of the point, too. She has a mission to steer these conversations around death and grieving away from the conventional and sort of forced positive spin on everything and towards a more, shall we say, 
practical ways of dealing with death and loss. And her readers have really connected to that perspective. And what I love about Nora's backstory is it seems like she got into all of this by happenstance. But when you look really closer, which we, of course, do in this conversation, it was more intentional than that. She's been a prolific journaler for most of her life. And when her late husband, Aaron, was on hospice, they both decided to do something unconventional and have him co-write his obituary with her before he passed away. And then get this. After Nora published the obituary, it ended up going viral because they kept the obituary light and humorous, mainly since that's how Aaron was in real life. He never took himself too seriously, and they wanted to reflect that in the obituary and not make it you know, long and drawn out and boring like most obituaries happen to be. Well, the obituary ended up getting reposted all over the place, and then book agents read it. And then they started reaching out to Nora to see if she's interested in publishing a book. And if not, then when she is interested to let them know. And that's basically how Nora got her first publishing deal for It's Okay to Laugh in this really unlikely way. And it just goes to show that, you know, when you decide to do conventional things in unconventional ways, you never know where it's going to lead. And in any case, Nora gleaned a lot of wisdom from her experience moving through grief, eventually getting remarried and then navigating her old life that she in some way had to sort of let go with her new life and being in a blended family. And it made for a very insightful conversation talking about all of these things and also how her personal backstory prepared her for much of what she was going to be experiencing later in life, as is mostly the case. So this is a really good conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it in Nora's own words. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Miss Nora McInerney. Nora McInerney. Thank you so much for coming on to my show. I've listened to a ton of your interviews. You're such a great interviewee as well as an interviewer. I love how much space you give your guests to talk and to to really get into their story. And I did finish reading Bad Vibes Only. I haven't read your other books, but I I want to talk to you about your writing process in this interview. So we'll do that a little bit later. And you have a very popular podcast, terrible things for asking. So I would love to dive into that as well. But as always, I like to start my conversations off talking about childhood. So first of all, thank Mm -hmm. you for coming on. And then we'll talk about young Nora. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What were you called anyway, growing up? Did you have a nickname? I did not have a nickname. I didn't have a nickname because it's very hard to nickname Nora, Mm -hmm. which is now a very popular little girl's name. I go to the playground with my kids and I hear Nora and I'm always like, oh, but they're yelling at their own children, not at me. Nora is a hard name to nickname. So I didn't really have any nicknames growing up. And I was so envious of that because my cousin had the best nickname of all time. She is now almost 40. We still call her Fuzz. (laughs) We still call her Fuzz because she had... No hair growing up. She just had this white cloud of fuzz 
growing on her head. And we still call her that to this day. And I was so envious that she had a cool nickname (laughs) and I was just Nora. So Mm. no nicknames growing up, sadly. You grew up in a family of four kids. Four kids. I grew up in a family of four kids. Both your parents were around. Yeah. What number are you? I'm two. You're two. Okay. Yeah. I'm three. So we're both middle. Both middle child. Exactly. You wrote about a lot of the vignettes growing up in your book. And one thing I found really interesting was how your dad never wanted to travel because of the whole Vietnam thing. So that's interesting. I guess my first question is, when I think back to my childhood, my dad always talked about you have to work for yourself. And that's just something he was Mm. just on this whole thing about working for yourself. And I'm wondering what were some of the philosophies that your parents would echo to you and your siblings growing up? Uh, almost anything. nothing nothing about work nothing <laughs> nothing about how to be an adult whatsoever very little guidance because my dad believed that there was no good time for anything so there was not a right time to get married there was not a right time to have kids you cannot prepare for life milestones you just meet them when they arrive or you go after them and and get them. But he did not tell me how people buy cars, uh, <laughs> what a mortgage is, real basic stuff that I think could have been helpful to me. Why you should not open a credit card in exchange for a free t-shirt the first day of college, <laughs> what mm-hmm. an interest rate was, things like that. But you always think that however you grow up is the normal way to grow up. And then as an adult, you realize, oh, there is kind of no normal way to grow up. Everybody's Mm. family is just their family. My parents were around. My parents loved each other. My parents were married until my dad died. My parents' marriage, I don't think, was very typical for the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. My parents never took a vacation together. They took their vacations separately because my dad liked to golf and my mom liked to go on adventures. And my mom wanted to go to Europe and my dad was never going to sit on another long plane ride because he had all the traveling he needed when he was 17 and went to Vietnam. My dad did tell me that marriage is not about romance that anyone can have a wedding, but not everyone can have a marriage, that Mm. the point of life was to find someone to share it with, to find work that supported a life, and that everything else was just gravy. So I was not taught, oh, like, you know, you have to be the best at everything and really like swing for the fences. It was like the point of life is to have like your life, the thing that you were talking about before we got started, right? Which is what is the kind of life that you want to have? You want to prioritize what's actually important to you. And to my dad, he spent most of my childhood working at ad agencies, really, really, really grueling hours, right? Like he's at work before I'm at school, He would get home super late. And when he went freelance and became a freelance copywriter and started working on infomercials and things like that, he was home a lot. He was home a lot, but he didn't just sit at his desk and 
do his work. He procrastinated a lot, like I do. (laughs) And he also started every day by waking up and going to the golf course when there was no snow in Minnesota. The months that there were no snow, he was up early and he was like doing what he wanted to do first before he sat down to do what other people wanted him to do. And I think I observed that as a kid, but I didn't realize that that was a choice that he was making. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it made me really nervous. Like, I was like, oh my God, why isn't my dad like, why is my, it's a Wednesday? Why is my dad at the golf course? Like, he's got to sit down and do his work. Like, when he quit his job, I truly thought, oh no, oh no, oh no, now my dad doesn't have a job. Like, I did not understand what it meant to be freelance, what it meant to like form an LLC and work for yourself. My parents didn't talk to me about, what that would mean, what that meant financially. And I do try to talk about that with my kids. I really do. I do try to say they don't need to know numbers. They don't need to be burdened with any kind of stuff like that. But I want them to know what I'm doing, what the priorities are, and like how we have this house, how we have money for them to buy their friend's birthday presents or to go out to dinner a couple times a month. Was your household more of a traditional household? Did your dad call most of the shots and your mom was more of a homemaker or how, how no, did that my mom worked. Work? No, my mom worked so much. My mom was mm-hmm. also freelance, but I didn't understand that she was because she was always going to an office. She was always going to an office or a studio. For a long time, she laid out catalogs. So she would be supervising the photo shoots and literally making the catalogs that would arrive in our mailboxes and that people would peruse through. God, I miss a catalog. Oh, I miss a catalog so much. Which catalog did she work on? She worked on this thing called Midwest Imports, which was tchotchkes. Mm -hmm. Tchotchkes, you know, like Department 56 things and seasonal home decor. So it would be July and she would be driving to a photo studio to shoot Christmas decorations. Right. And she'd get to bring some extras home. You know, so I had I had my own little box of decorations in my room. And my mom worked as much as my dad, if not more. She told me this year, which I don't remember, but she was like, Oh yeah, I worked like a dog so that I could take four or six weeks off in the summer and we could all hang out. And I was like, Oh, I didn't even realize that. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize that you were home in the summer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I didn't even notice that. Huh? Yeah, you were home in the summer, but I was still going up to like the park for like whatever park board camp there was. My dad was the heavy in the family. He definitely had never been to therapy. He came home from (laughs) a very unpopular war to, I read in his, I found one of his journals recently to an unfeeling country, an unfeeling country. And he learned to put that away, put away the depth of the trauma and the loss he had experienced. And a lot of it came out sideways. A lot of it came out at us. It was like living with a storm cloud where you didn't know if it was going to rain. And when it parted and he was in a good mood, you were just so excited. And it's not like he was in a bad mood all the time, but I do think we're sort of predisposed, especially as kids, to remember the things that scared us. And my dad's moods scared me and they scared my siblings too. So my mom was the person who made most of our decisions, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I would, I would, I would ask my mom if I could go to a friend's house. I never asked my dad if I could go to a friend's house, but 
I do not remember my mom ever yelling at us ever, even when we were being like a stereotypical group of children and we literally broke her lamp, you know, <laughs> like even then she wouldn't, she wouldn't yell at us. She might be bummed out. She might be sad, but she wouldn't yell at us the way, you know, if I tipped over a bottle of nail polish remover, as I did once as a five-year-old, my dad would really like, you would feel how mad he was about that. You also wrote about some of your body image issues to put a name to it. Growing up, you were tall. There was a Weight Watchers period at some point in there. And you were just hoping someone would see you as attractive. Yeah. Did that play a role in any kind of mental stuff yet? Were you you, you experiencing any anxiety or depression or anything like that? Yeah, I was the most anxious child. And I can see that in some of my own kids, right? And there's something Mm -hmm. about seeing your kids struggle with the things you struggled with that one, just give you, have, make you have so much more tenderness for yourself and also for my parents. It's not as if in the nineties, we were talking about mental health. It's not as if in the nineties, we were talking about kids having, having mental health. Are you kidding me? If you took a time machine back to 1992 and asked my parents about their mental health, they would be like, (laughs) <laughs> what is wrong with you, you hippie? Get off my steps. How did you like, what are you talking about? Have you checked in with your kids about their feelings? What? Like, huh? No, I was so anxious. I was so worried about everything. And, you know, I have like a lot of compassion for my parents because when you have four kids, you have four people who are like complicated beings who need you, it's a lot. And I, grew up, I was very, very skinny. My sister was, if you look at photos, a normal-sized person, a normal-sized child. She's eight years older than me. And I grew up with people in my life saying about my sister when I could hear that my sister was so beautiful, if only she could lose weight. And I grew up with people commenting on how skinny I was. And they didn't say, oh, isn't that wonderful? But you can tell, right? You can tell, oh, isn't it wonderful? Like, look at, oh, oh, I can feel all of your little ribs. Oh, look, I can put my, you know, in my fingers all the way around your bicep. I had internalized that message. And I also grew up, it came of age in the late 90s, in the millennium, heroin chic, and then Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton and all the other girls who are scary, skinny, the Olsen twins pushing bracelets all the way up past their elbow. (laughs) Like all these sort of messages converged. And yeah, by the time I was in college and I weighed a perfectly normal amount for a woman of six feet tall, I was at a Weight Watchers meeting. I was at a Weight Watchers meeting trying to figure out how to be thinner. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. 
and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. What was your idea of success at that time going to college? I was so directionless going to college light. I wanted a life like my parents in so many ways, right? They had a a nice little tidy house in a cute little neighborhood. I'd never gone on vacations as a kid. We weren't rich. And I do think to take a vacation in the 90s, you were rich. I did not know anyone who was going to like Disneyland. I knew nobody who went to Disneyland. One of my friends went to Mexico with her family. And when she came back and came to school like with a tan after Christmas break, we were all like, whoa, like, whoa, that's, that is nuts. That's absolutely crazy. But I wanted to be married. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have a house. I wanted to have, like my dad had mentioned, work that was meaningful to me or that helped me lead a meaningful life. I did not know what that was. I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a writer. I did not know how people became writers. I thought there must've been some secret way of doing it. I didn't go to like a fancy college known for a writing program. I didn't know if it was realistic to think that I could be a writer. I remember telling my mom when I was in high school reading David Sedaris, (laughs) telling her I can never be a writer because like nothing's happened to me. Like, oh no, my life is, you get you guys gave me a nice, boring life and now I'll never be able to be a writer. And that's so silly now that I think about <laughs> it. And also like, did I jinx myself perhaps? But I wanted to be a writer. I always wrote. I like had my first paid writing job when I was in middle school and I wrote for our neighborhood paper, not our city paper, but our neighborhood paper. And I wrote for our college newspaper and I also just suffered from this extreme lack of like self-esteem, of confidence, of like believing that I could take any kind of risk. I was so risk averse. Like like I tell any 21, 22, 25, 30, anyone, I'm like, if you have no children, if you have no mortgage, if you have no significant (laughs) amount of debt... Go do whatever you want. Go work on a sheep farm for the love of God. <laughs> like go go take a train trip. Go work at a bookstore and then spend your days writing or doing whatever you want. Like it, there is no rush and I felt this rush to have some kind of career. I was in a group of friends where people were graduating with business degrees and 
were going on job interviews in like little lady suits and they were going to go work at insurance companies or at Lockheed Martin. I didn't even know what that was. And I was like, should I go interview at Boeing? Should I go work at GE? I thought they made light bulbs. I didn't even know what they did. Like, So I just was in this rush to get to adulthood thinking that if I got there to a certain age, to some sort of imaginary like milestone, like it would make sense. It would click and I would get it and it would all make sense. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't happen. You end up in advertising though, like your yeah, dad. Just so like my did, dad. How did that yeah. happen? Just like my dad. Nepotism is how it happened. So um, <laughs> nepotism, nepotism. That's what happened. The first job I got out of college, I found on monster.com. I don't know if it still exists, maybe rest in peace. It was like, I graduated in 2005. There was this new way of applying for jobs on the internet. Most of the time when you applied to a job, you'd then discover it was like a call center or an MLM right, or right. you know something. It would just be, it was a scam in some way. Uh-huh, you'd go to uh-huh. two interviews and be like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> I'm a door-to-door salesman. What happened? Um, and this felt like that. Like I, 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 it was in New York City and I was so excited. And I went to the little interview. I went through two rounds of interviews with the manager and with HR. And I left the interview with an offer and I had no idea what they did. I had no idea what the company was. I went to the website. You cannot tell what it did. What they did like, was write and place help wanted ads in print newspapers. So our clients were HR people for call centers And maybe one of them was like a big national bank, right? And they needed, you know, call center employees in like Poughkeepsie. And I would get like a little brief about what they needed. And then I would come up with like a headline, like bank on a better future with so-and-so. And And I have to put all the details, like the interviews are this date, this date, this date. And then I would call the newspaper and like negotiate the ad space. And then I would meet with somebody who could lay out the ad and then I would send the ad. A robot could do it and probably does at this point. (laughs) That was my first job. I got that one on my own. I was losing my mind. I was like, everybody who works at this company is... It was so odd. I just never worked anywhere, but I knew I knew it wasn't good that a girl my age was having an affair with a married guy 15 years older than us. Like no one had to tell me that was wrong. No one had to tell me that was that wasn't a good healthy work environment. So I wanted out the agency where my dad had worked before had opened up an office in New York City. It was very small. There were like six people there. And he gave me an email address and was like, email this guy. Tell him what you're looking for. Tell him you're my daughter. Tell him you're available and make sure you write a good letter. It's like, write a good letter. The the letter is not, I need a job. The letter is, what can I do for your company? This is what I can bring to your company. And I did that. And I got an interview and I got a little assistant job. And then... I was just a little job jumper. Every 18 months, every 12 months, I would just meet someone and just jump to a new company and jump to a new company and jump to a new company and get paid a little bit more to do almost the same thing. And 
I lived that whole, I think, decade of my life just with absolute dread and anxiety seeping through every part of my being constantly, all the time, every day. Mm -hmm. Woke up with it, went to bed with it. It was just there always. What was your writing outlet at the time? Were you keeping a journal or? Yeah, I always kept journals and I loved the internet right away. Like, you know, I was starting live journals. I was forgetting the password and just starting another one. (laughs) I was making, you know, whatever kind of blog I could make. At the era where there were so few blogs that you could go to this, you could register your blog for the city you were in. And I registered mine in New York City and could see all the other New York City blogs. And they were all on one page. Mm. They were all on one page in 2006. And I treated it like a public diary. I had a little hit counter. I was getting tens of hits from my mom. Tens of hits. (laughs) From my college friends, from no one else. And I just loved it. I just loved having a place to write and share my feelings and my observations. And I never, ever, ever thought, oh, someone at work shouldn't know about this, right? And no one at work cared because no one at work cared about me. <laughs> so, what were you writing about? Like you saw something that day that was interesting? Yeah, or, yeah, you know? yeah. You know, I would, I would write about, you know, I was so young and I moved in with my first boyfriend and mm-hmm. we lived in a little studio apartment with like huge cockroaches. And we lived in this cute little neighborhood where as long as I didn't bring my boyfriend into the pizzeria, I could get two free slices of pizza a week. I could go in, (laughs) offer to buy one slice, but I'd walk out with two free slices and that would be our dinner. And I just wrote about everything that I did or thought, missing my parents, books I liked. There was never any sort of theme. There were so many blogs at the time where This one that I loved, that I absolutely loved was this woman who I think about still to this day, Jessica Quirk, who shared a photo every day of like the outfit that she wore. And it's Mm. called like what I wore. Mm. And I just loved her. Like I loved, loved, loved that. But I was like, oh, I don't have a theme because like, I don't have a thing and I don't care what I wear (laughs) and I don't care about what I eat. (laughs) And, you know, and I don't have a fancy life like this woman, Nadine Jolie or Jolie Nadine, who had this really fancy life in PR and was going to like fancy parties. And I wasn't doing anything fancy. I was just existing and liking it. And in some ways, I think like, oh God, maybe I was like really happy in that era. But what I remember so much is like waking up feeling like the sense of dread, feeling the sense of dread as the train got closer and closer to work, walking to work as though my shoes were filled with with lead (laughs) and just feeling constantly like I was not doing a good job. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't want to do it at all. I wanted to do other things, but I didn't know what those things were. And I remember being 25, being three years out of college light and saying, I wish I could switch careers, but I've just put so much time. <laughs> what? I was like, yeah, because 25 is almost 30, 30 is almost 40, 40 is almost 50, 50 is almost like so 25 mm-hmm. is basically 70. So I can't like switch careers. It's so silly to me. You know, it's so silly. Like mm-hmm. I had no 
real responsibilities other than paying my rent, which, and we, you know, but I did not have, I did not have enough confidence to believe that I could have worked at Starbucks and figured it out. I did not. I did not. I had absolutely no risk tolerance whatsoever. And now I have all the risk tolerance in the world. And when you met Aaron, you had been working primarily as a tweeter, someone who was just tweeting for. Yeah, I was doing, I was, I was a social media. There was, there wasn't even a job title for what I did because social media was just starting to be branded. Okay. So even when we're making Facebook pages for our clients, they hadn't even started making pages. Mm -hmm. You were just making a Facebook profile Mm -hmm. for Papa John's or whatever brand you were working on. I did not work on Papa John's. I worked on another pizza company Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I, you know, was putting together like social media strategies and, and creative ideas and, I loved being on the internet. I remember working with this other girl right out of college to present to the ad agency that we worked with about like why they should care about this, like in talking about MySpace and talking about and all these people being like, no one cares about MySpace. No one cares about Facebook. Like we're talking about banner ads, baby. We're talking about billboards. We're talking about TV commercials. And we were like, okay, yeah, sorry, we're dumb. I was working in social media at an agency across... I'd moved back to the Midwest. I lived in Minneapolis at this point. I worked at a rival agency to the one that Aaron worked at. He was a designer. He was a graphic designer, Mm -hmm. later a creative director. And he was so not stressed out by work at all. (laughs) Like, Like I would get emails... That were like emergency. And the emergency was that, you know, we needed to rewrite a tweet that the brand hadn't approved, you know? <laughs> right. And I'd be like, oh, all, my God. all hands on like, deck. Yeah. Immediate, just like panic, panic, <laughs> panic. I made a mistake. They found a typo. I'm going to die. And he was like, oh, just do it tomorrow. And I was like, no, I should do it like right now. I should do it right now. Like just losing my mind or like, oh, the client didn't like my ideas. I'm such a piece of shit. And he'd be like, okay. He's like, I don't think it's that serious. It just wasn't that serious to him. It wasn't that serious. He was so mentally healthy. He was so mentally healthy. And I, at this point in time, had not been to therapy. Would have been nice to know that I had ADHD. And that's why I would get to work at 7 a.m. Hoping that I could focus on something before other people came in and I got pulled into meetings. And then I would literally just mess around, waste time, procrastinate for eight hours and then stay three hours later (laughs) to like do the work I should have done during the day, that would have been helpful to know. would have been helpful to like have cognitive behavioral therapy and just like talk about my feelings to a person. (laughs) But instead I was like, let's hold them in. Let's hold them in. Yeah. I met Aaron and I was in my late twenties. I think I was 27 when we met, maybe 26. How did you meet? What's the cute meet story? I don't remember meeting him like, I don't remember the first time I met him. I knew because you we talked Facebook. about going to the bar and all that. Yes. But I wasn't sure what and happened. We did. Before then. Yeah, we did. So it's like there's, we were already Facebook friends. And I remember seeing him on my list and being like, I don't know this guy, deleting him <laughs> and him re requesting me. But when I still lived in New York and being like, well, I guess I know him. He wants to be friends with me this bad. But really, he had like met me because he worked with my mom. 
and I was hmm. home visiting my mom. Obviously, I stopped into her work to say hello. And she had been walking me around the office, introducing me to the single men in her office. Very appropriate. And he was not on the list. She did not want me to meet him. She wanted me to meet the cute guy he shared a cubicle with. (laughs) And I don't remember that at all. And then we'd been flirting on Twitter later when I moved back to Minneapolis. And he was like, oh yeah, I tweeted at you a couple of years ago and you like never replied. And I was like, well, yeah, you were a stranger. Like, why would I have replied to you? And the night that we met, met the night that I remember there was an art opening In Northeast Minneapolis, it was at this big old warehouse space where my uncle had used to have a photo studio for like 40 years. He'd been working maybe 30. Who cares? He had been working in this space forever. He had just decided to like retire, give it up, give it over to the next generation of like creatives. And somebody had turned it into a gallery. And my cousins and I were like, we have to go to this place where we used to have birthday parties and funerals and Thanksgiving. Like we have to go see what it is now. Aaron knew I was going because, of course, I put it on Twitter. Why wouldn't you put your personal whereabouts on Twitter for strangers to see? And he said he would be there. And we've been talking online about like Taylor Swift, who we both liked. And and this is, you know, 2010. People are not liking Taylor Swift openly. Okay. Like it's a joke or you like country music. She hasn't yet put out a real pop album. And Aaron is like, she's going to be the greatest songwriter of our generation. Okay. People are going to mention her in the same breath as Paul McCartney. And I said, I absolutely agree. I had the new, tell me if this is boring (laughs) and I can move on. But like I had the issue of People Magazine where she was on the cover. It said, Taylor tells all who all of her songs are about. I'd swiped it from the office and he was like, bring me that magazine. And I put it in my purse and was like, there's no way this guy's going to show up. And he totally showed up. And I was standing in like a group with my cousins. And he was like, well, he just walked right up to me. He just walked right up to me into this group of like a closed circle of my family members. And was like, you're Nora McInerney. My full name. Like no one says your full name, right? No one says your full name. I was like, yeah. Oh my God. And he was so much cuter in person than he was in the tiny photo on Twitter. And I gave him the magazine. Were you taller than him? No, he was like six, four. And I was wearing heels. I always wore, I was wearing like these big heeled, like cowboy boots that I wore all the time at that point in time. And I was like looking up at him and I was like, damn, he's tall. He's skinny, which is what I Uh like. I like a, (laughs) I like a, I like a guy who looks weak. That's my type. (laughs) (laughs) I like him sickly sort of, you know, and he was just so funny. He was so funny. He was so funny. Was there anything else about his physical appearance that really caught your eye? Like, was he wearing anything jewelry wise? He he was really dressed really nicely and he always dressed nicely. He was wearing a button down shirt always, almost always and a cardigan. And when he wasn't wearing a button down and a cardigan, he was wearing a t-shirt that he had thrifted himself like 10 years earlier and a Mm. cardigan. And he always wore a belt and he always wore like his jeans were always nice. And he had just had the best smile and Mm. his teeth were like a little bit crooked. Like the front two were like pushed out a little in front, but they also like folded in on each other a little bit. Mm. And he had really big teeth and he had a great smile. And what I liked about him was just this energy where he was interested in me. Like it didn't Mm. feel overtly flirtatious. It didn't feel gross, which is how it often felt. Like when you would meet a guy, especially like 
where there's alcohol involved. And he met all my cousins. He met the friend I was there with. He met, he remembered all of their names. And when we went to a bar afterwards, he went up to the bar. I only had one cousin remaining at that point. And he got us each a Coors Light. It was a different time. (laughs) And I like made eye contact with him at the bar and he did this like funny little dance. He ran across the dance floor, slid on his knees and held them up to my cousin and I. (laughs) And I just like laughed. So it was just so funny. Like he was so funny. And I truly couldn't tell. Like even after our first date where he shook my hand, I was like, maybe this guy's just going to be like my best friend now. Like, I don't know. Like it was just so, it was so great to be around him. And I didn't feel that nervous. Like, oh, does he like, like me? I was like, well, he likes me. I just don't know how he likes me. You guys were G chatting all day day long. And then you you secretly moved in with one another. Yeah, we dated for like a year and maybe at like 11 months, my lease was up. I lived in a fancy, crappy, high-rise new build apartment. They're everywhere now. They're in every city, but there was just one in Minneapolis at the time. The kind where on the outside, you're like, wow, this building is luxury. And then you walk in, you're like, I could punch through every wall in this place. (laughs) There's not a stud to be found. This place is being held together by duct tape. And... Mm -hmm. He had a house. He owned a house. And we use that word loosely because it was very shack-like. It was a very, <laughs> very feel every freezing breeze through the windows. Very cold little shack. He had a dog. He had like a responsibility. So even when we were hanging out, he's like, well, I got to go. Got to go take care of my dog, which I loved. You know, I love that. I love that in a person too. Really caring about someone besides yourself and outside of just like a romantic relationship. And so, yeah, I moved in with him. I moved in with him and that was not something that I knew my parents would like. And so we just didn't tell them. I I just didn't tell him. I just didn't tell him. I was like, I'm 27. No one needs to know. Okay. No one needs to know that my lease is up. They're not paying my rent. Why do they care? And so I just didn't tell them. I didn't tell them until I had to. Did you get headaches or did you seem relatively healthy for that period of time that you guys were shacking up together? The craziest thing is that the kind of symptoms that so many people have with brain tumors or with glioblastoma, they could be anything. And the really specific ones are so scary. And he didn't have those. One of my friends found her husband's brain tumor because he got mean and his whole personality changed and he was confused and she walked in and I'm reading the newspaper upside down. And some people have blinding headaches. He had the same amount of headaches I did. And we spent all day staring at a computer. Of course we had headaches and he had a hard time falling asleep, but that's because he had always been a night owl. And so he always like, he would go to bed with me and let me fall asleep. And then he would put on his headphones and play whatever video game people are playing, (laughs) whatever Mm -hmm. video game guys in their twenties, or he was 30 at the time. So whatever video game guys were playing, he would play that silently on the TV after I had fallen asleep. So there were no real symptoms. The symptom that presented itself was the one that's like the most obvious, which is a grand mal horrifying seizure. 
And that happened at work. That's how we knew. That's how we knew. Okay. So give us a little montage of how the next part played out in your life. Yeah. I go to see him at the hospital. We both think it's a joke. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like we truly walk into the ER thinking it's Halloween. We're going to be home passing out candy tonight because we just moved in together. And what feels more grown up than passing out candy to neighborhood kids on Halloween? And he does not go home that night. They do a CAT scan. They do an MRI. He's got a mass in his head. They know it's a brain tumor. They've got to take it out. He's scheduled for surgery four days later so they can do all the kinds of tests to figure out what part of your brain is this going to affect? What are the effects going to be? I proposed to him that night, the night that we find the brain tumor. And he's like, you can't marry me. You can't marry me. I'm going to be sick and I'm going to die. And I was like, no one tells me what to do. So I am going to marry you and we're going to get married. We're going to get married as soon as you're out of the hospital. Were you kind of in denial or where was that coming from? I think it's just back on it now. Ignorance. You know what I mean? Ignorance. I had one moment right when I found out he had a brain tumor where I went to the bathroom in the hospital and I, I literally just saw it all. Right. I saw the, I saw the funeral. I saw him dying. I saw how lonely and sad and horrifying it would be. And I just like saw it all the same way that when I was an anxious kid, when my parents went out, I would imagine them getting in a horrible car wreck and my siblings and I being orphans and having to go live with our respective godparents and and never seeing each other again, you know? And I remember being in the bathroom and like literally like slapping myself out of it and being like, no, 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 you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. You have no idea what the future is. Like you are going to stay in the present and in the present, the guy you love, the guy that you are obsessed with, the guy who's made every day of the past year feel like so fun, so wonderful. So, you know, every single day was just so great. (laughs) I don't know how to explain it. It was like your most annoying friend being like, and I wasn't even looking and I found him. That was it. I was like, you're going to go out there and you're going to be with him and you're going to just take it as it comes. And A lot of it was ignorance. A lot of it was probably denial. And a lot of it was just magical thinking, right? Which is like, well, someone's got to survive it statistically. So why wouldn't it be you, right? Mm. Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it be you? Okay. Until they take the tumor out, you don't even know if it's cancer. So until they tell you it's cancer, it's not cancer. And until you're dying, you're not dying. (laughs) Like That's just how it goes. And Aaron was just a naturally like a buoyant person in general, you know, and it's not like he was like, yeah, I'm going to beat this. and I'm going to be the best cancer person ever. But we were also young. We had jobs. We had things to do. He was like, well, I got to get back to work. Right. I have a house, right? Like we're going to, we're going to get married. I got to work. <laughs> like I could have a job. And it was pretty clear early on that we were not going to be cancer people. You know, he was never going to go to a support group. I was never going to go on the forums and find women whose husbands were going through the same thing. I was never going to do my own research about treatments. I was never going to try to uproot our lives and move him somewhere to do a clinical trial. Like we wanted to have our real life. You know what I mean? And our real life was Minneapolis and our real life was the people we already knew. And our real life was going to work and watching Game of Thrones and walking our stupid dog. <laughs> so and you all even requested to the doctor. Don't even tell me how long don't I tell have me. left. Yeah. Did nope. you tell your friends or your parents at this point? 
or how did yeah, that play out? Yeah. Uh, tell them the same thing or tell them about the... No, about the cancer. And, oh, so uh, he was so popular. Like when he ended up in the hospital that same day, it was just like a party. It was like, there were so many people there. There were so many people there. And I had gone back to our house to get pajamas, a toothbrush. You know, he was like, he was like... I, I don't want to wear this like for the, and he's like, I don't want to wear a hospital gun. Will you get me like this, 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 my face wash, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I want, I want the things that I've done so packing a bag and they came and told him about the tumor when I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And the room was filled with people when I got there and he told me, and I don't know who told my mom, maybe it was me. But I remember there was like an email chain and there were like, you know, uh, text threads. And there were like, I tried to have an email chain that would update everybody. But I pretty soon after just started a blog, I started a blog. And that was the best way to sort of update people and also to kind of set the tone that Aaron and I had agreed on, which is like, it's not a cancer story, right? Like this is a life story. This is a love story. There's going to be some cancer, but I'm, I, I really don't want to talk about like what his treatment options are because he doesn't care because the, the treatment options are for glioblastoma, the same as they were in the eighties and the same as they were in the seventies. They haven't changed. It's chemo, it's radiation, and it's MRIs every four to six weeks to see if the tumor grows back. That's it. That's it. And what are you going to do in the meantime? What are you going to do in the meantime? You're just going to live your life if you're lucky. So all this blogging that you had been doing kind of prepared you for, you didn't have to go out and figure out how to start a blog. You already had a Tumblr page. and Yeah, I already had that stuff. And I was still writing. I always have a notebook. I had a notebook with me in the hospital. I was writing down scenes. I was writing down thoughts. I was just describing things. I was reading them to him. And he was like, oh, that happened. Oh, you know, like, oh, when did that? Like, so it was pretty collaborative. I never posted anything without Aaron seeing it first ever. When you wrote in your journal, I'm always curious about this, Like you can write just random abstract thoughts, or you can tell Mm -hmm. stories that will help you recall this experience, or you could write with the anticipation that maybe one day somebody's going to go back and read this and you want to get context to everything. What what was your motivation or how, how are you approaching journaling? I think it was just always a way to get things out of my head. As a kid, I was obsessed with the diary of Anne Frank. I was obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder. I was Mm -hmm. obsessed with little women. I literally did write my journal entries with the expected audience of a future historian. So I would explain things for someone who wasn't alive in the 90s. (laughs) I'd be like, (laughs) my cousin and I watched this movie starring this person and this person and this person. Describe the plot of the movie. Describe how my cousin was related to me. Her mom is, is Rita, my mom's sister. Like just like insane. That's how, that's how, you know, that movie, 12 years a slave. Remember that movie, 12 years a slave. So that's based off of a book that was written by the guy who got abducted and put in slavery for 12 years. And he was living in New York beforehand. And if you read the book, which you can read online for free. Yeah. It's just like that. He's like, you guys don't believe this shit. It's like, they got whips and I'm over here having to get all this cotton. And it feels like somebody in modern times writing it, like trying to describe everything. Like this is the craziest, most bizarre thing that I've experienced. Yeah, Writing it for future generations who will be like, what the 
fuck? Like, yeah. But yeah. yeah. But instead, I'm like, okay, so here's a day in the life of an eight year old white girl in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. I went ice skating at Pearl Park. Pearl Park is located at. <laughs> <laughs> is bizarre but as i got older it was definitely just like it's not consistent for me i always have a journal i always have a notebook sometimes it's a bullet point list sometimes it's mm-hmm. something somebody said that i want to remember sometimes it is just a little scene but when i've tried to be like a disciplined journaler like there's so many people you know oh you have to have a journaling practice or like you have to do the same thing or like that's never going to be me i will almost never do the same thing. And I've also, I was talking to a friend about this recently, which is like, your calendar is a form of a journal. You know what I mean? If I look back, there's certain things even that in that year in 2011, I sat and I didn't realize it was a recurring. And I set Aaron's brain surgery as a recurring invite on my calendar. I set his chemo and radiation schedule as a recurring invite. So every year I see it again. Mm-hmm. which is so interesting to me and I could change it. Right. But it's like, I can look back at 2012 or 2013 in my Google calendar and see like what I was doing and where I was spending my time. And I think that's so interesting too. So whenever someone is overwhelmed by the idea of, you know, Oh, having a journal, you already have one. You already right. have one. You well, know? nowadays it's also the camera roll. That's, that's a bit yeah. of a journal as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you watched your husband, decline and eventually succumb to cancer. And thinking back now, many, many years later, what are some of the things that you felt like you did right? What what are some of the things that kind of Mm -hmm. hold up and you you think, well, I'm glad, I'm glad I really took that approach where I said something or I didn't say something or I did something or I didn't do something. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we did it as well as we could have. Mm -hmm. And I am glad that we didn't make it our whole life. I'm glad we didn't make it our whole life because it would have been futile anyways. And all we would have done is rob ourselves of the time that we had, which was not a lot. I am so glad I didn't do that. I am so glad that I didn't spend my time researching something that I had no business researching because I was an English major. Okay. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I, I could barely understand like what the doctors were saying half the time. They'd be like, do you understand? And I was like, absolutely not, but don't bother repeating it because. Like, because we don't care, you know, like we just don't care. I think, I think we did. I really think we did a good job. I really think we did a good job. I'm glad we talked about everything. We met with a estate attorney when we had no estate. (laughs) There's no, Mm -hmm. there's nothing to, you know, there's nothing to meet about. There's no money. (laughs) So like, who's going to get all the nothing? But we did that. And it was a way of also talking about, I was pregnant at the time. Like, what are the worst case scenarios? Not just for you, but for me, for our kid. We had all of those conversations. We had all the the medical power of attorney conversations, all the end of life conversations for myself, for him. Those are things that people in their 30s don't talk about. Typically, they don't. And you don't know when you will be faced with making a decision for the person that you love. And it is better to know. It is better to know. And is it a a wonderful conversation to have? No, but I will also say it is one of the most romantic things that you can do for and with one another. And to like put yourselves in the feet of a potential future versions of yourselves and say, if this horrible thing happens, then what? 
than one. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad we did all of that. I'm glad we did all of that. And I wish I wouldn't mm -hmm. have worked as much, but I did not have a choice. That's the economic reality of most people in America, right? It's like the things that don't kill you might destroy you financially. So we did exactly what we needed to do. And so I'm glad that as he got as normal a possible last three years of his life, like he did still get to go into work. He liked work. You know, he liked his coworkers. He liked going to the office and that wasn't taken from him. Like if we would have just sat at home, I really think we both would have lost it. I really do. Something else that you did that in hindsight turned out to be very serendipitous for you was you invited him to collaborate on his own obituary. Yes. I'm glad we did that. I'm glad we did that. I know it's so weird. I remember asking him and just feeling like, oh, we'd, we'd still said, right? Like, we don't want to know. We don't want to know how much time he has left. And it had been almost three years at this point. My dad had just died. I just lost our second pregnancy. Things were bad. You don't need to be told by a doctor when things are getting worse, you know, with brain cancer. He lost the left side of his body. His face was drooping. He couldn't use his left arm. His left foot was dragging. It was clear. 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 And after my dad died and I wrote my dad's obituary with my siblings, which was interesting to do, you know, like four people being like, no, 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 wait, 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 say this, say this instead, <laughs> you know? I knew the night that he entered hospice and by entering hospice, it makes it sound like you're really like, you know, crossing a threshold. You're going home to DIY your own death. Really? They're going to drop off some supplies. They might drop off some morphine and they're mm -hmm. like, call us if it gets worse. And that's it. All they're saying is like, there's no more we can do to fight the disease. Like now you are going to do comfort care. You'll just be made comfortable and first I had to ask him to do something really uncomfortable, but I had seen the way Aaron's diagnosis, Aaron's sickness, and not just with Aaron with anybody, right? When something hard happens, something horrible happens, something bad happens, whatever, someone's going through something and it becomes you know, a story, it can really be very dehumanizing. Pity is really dehumanizing. Pity is really dehumanizing. And... I didn't want to be the person to try to like sum up what Aaron's life meant without him. He had told me long before what he wanted out of a funeral, how he wanted the funeral to go. I remember asking him like, will you make a playlist? He was like way ahead of you. I already made a playlist. I would never <laughs> let you let you pick the music for my funeral ever. I'm like, I am not offended by that. It would have been just the worst. It would have been the worst. He made his own playlist. He knew what he wanted. And so I asked him to write the obituary with me and we did. And it was so funny and we laughed so hard and we cried so hard and I saved it to my Google Drive and I titled it Just In Case. Just In Case. And we used it two weeks later. It goes viral. Yeah, 2014 viral. This is a simpler time. Okay. Similar time. Try to imagine 2014 where there's just one algorithm for all of us. Okay. It's not, there's not like your Facebook, my Facebook, your Instagram feed, my Instagram feed. 
there's no TikTok. There's no, you know, it's just everything is everywhere and it's all in the same place. And it was on, it went viral because we did reveal his identity. We said that he had died of complications due to a radioactive spider bite and years Mm -hmm. of fighting a nefarious criminal named cancer who has plagued our society for far too long. Mm -hmm. So we revealed his identity as Spider-Man. I did not know they would publish it. I was like, oh God, we'll see. They'll publish literally anything. You're paying for it. Okay. It's an ad for your funeral. They will publish it. And I thought it would go into our local paper, the Star Tribune, and it would be what it was supposed to be, which is an inside joke, right? Aaron made everyone feel like they were invited to the party. They were a part of the joke. There was no inside joke. We were all on the inside of it. And it did that, right? Like people saw it and they laughed at it, but then it just, it, yeah, it literally went viral. It went everywhere. It was everywhere. It was everywhere. And so you saying you just wanted to write, right? You start getting yeah. these calls from editors. Yeah, I or... was still writing. I was still writing. I wrote my way through those two weeks of hospice. I wrote my way through the funeral and everything that came after. And a lot of people found that obituary. When they found the obituary, they found the blog I had and they found, you know, my little Instagram account where I was, you know, journaling in the captions. And I got calls from agents and editors and people asked, do you want to write a book? And I was like, I would love to write a book. Not about this. I want to write The Devil Wears Prada. Okay, I want to write... (laughs) I can't believe that book has already been written. I want to write that book. I don't know that if I want to write about this. And I also did want to write about this. Like There are certain stories inside of you that you have to write. And I was already doing that. I was doing that for an audience of zero. I was doing it for an audience of a hundred. I was doing it for an audience of a thousand. I was doing it for an audience of thousands at that point and not with any end in mind. I didn't start my blog thinking like, oh, someday this will be a great book. <laughs> like I was just like, this is the only way that I know how to deal with this and survive it. This is the only way. This is the only way I can do it. Yeah, because you and, were feeling guilty. You were telling everyone who would listen yeah. about like what we'll, we'll talk about that. Talk about the initial stages of mourning for you in relationship to how we expect people to mourn and what, yeah. what were some of the learnings that you you um you, I mean the first stages of mourning for me were just straight up denial and avoidance. You know, mm-hmm. just like, and by denial, it's not like, oh, I think my husband's alive. It's just, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I knew this was going to happen. We're okay. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. I was not good. We were not okay. You know, I had an almost two-year-old child who, you know, had been born sort of into this traumatic situation who was gestating inside of me and probably just like taking a cortisol bath every single day, <laughs> like just feeling my stress, hearing my stress constantly. I was not okay. I was not doing well in a lot of ways when I was writing was the only time I could be honest. I could not bear to look in the eyes of a single person I knew and tell them the truth. Even the people who loved me and cared about me. If they came over, I was good. I was good. Can I get you a coffee? I just made a a brunch just for you. Just this show, this performance of being okay. I had signed up for a half marathon that was going to happen four months later. I ran it. Okay. I ran it. And I just wanted so badly to 
earn my spot. Like Aaron was better than me and he died. And I had to like make sure that I earned my spot on this earth. And that kind of grief is really chaotic. I think people don't understand the chaos of grief, right? Like you can understand if someone's crying, you can't understand if someone is up all night, pulling everything out of their pantry, rearranging their living room, researching different states to move to, not going back to work, by the way. I just didn't go back. I just didn't go back. I just didn't go back. Being angry, being like incredibly angry about things that are probably pretty small and forgivable. Grief is like really ugly and it's not always a sympathetic way to be. It's not always sympathetic. And I did want to write something that sort of represented that chaos. I was given a lot of books after Aaron died. I read a lot of books when he was sick and when he was diagnosed and books that I loved, books that I loved, but that were written from this like comfortable distance, right? 10 years later, 20 years later, we can give something a meaning and it doesn't hurt the same way. Mm -hmm. And you can write about it from a little bit of a remove. It's called perspective, right? (laughs) It's called perspective, but this is like also a perspective. And that's where I was, right? I couldn't even see where I was or how I was. And that's the first book I wrote was written with my face to the wall. There are a few things that kind of, again, seem to be serendipitous. The emails that you were writing turn into your podcast, the guilt that you're feeling turn into this support group and your book that happened as a result of the obituary. Yeah. Did you feel like there was any sort of divinity happening at that time? I know you have a strong opinion about it, but I'm just curious. Or did you just feel like you were just kind of like Kramering your way into all of these different things? I was Kramering it. And also I, I like, there was no plan. There was no plan. There was no expectation for anything either. If, there was a thing that I could do or I thought I could do, I would try it. And I think that's the risk tolerance that I had was not from comfort. Now I didn't have a job. Now I didn't have a husband. He hadn't had, you know, a life insurance policy that, you know, was going to help me survive. We had to crowdfund our way out of that medical debt that Mm -hmm. we had. But like, what was the worst thing that could happen? It had already happened. My dad was dead. My husband was dead. I had lost that pregnancy. So I'd never have another baby because it also my husband was dead. And I just thought like, I don't know what else, <laughs> what else can happen? What else can happen? So there's kind of a freedom that you felt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause also like who cares, right? Like if it hadn't worked, who cares? No one cares. No one yeah. cares. And I remember a friend losing their business around the same time that Aaron died and they lost it in part because like they just had not had, I don't even want to say humility, but the comfort of saying like, this isn't working and I don't know how to fix it. And they Mm -hmm. were so ashamed of that, right? They were so ashamed of the way that it fell apart. And I remember telling them like, no one cares. You know what I mean? No one thinks less of you. You did a thing that most of us will never do. Like Mm -hmm. it worked for five years. That's great. And now it doesn't. And now you don't have it. No one's looking at you thinking like, wow, what a loser. Like you're thinking that none of us are thinking it. And yeah, I did have this sort of like sense of freedom. Like who cares? I was just, I was just doing things. I was just doing things, but a part of it, all those things that I was doing were also like me distracting myself from like 
dealing with my sorrow, dealing with my loss, dealing with my grief. And a part of them were this frenetic energy that I can sense in other people who are experiencing loss. Like I have to do something to show the world how much this person meant to me, right? I have to do this thing because this person can't anymore. And I always tell people like, you don't have to, you don't have to like loving them when they were here, that counts being with Mm -hmm. them while they were here. That counts. That matters just as much. And I don't know if all the stuff that I did was good for me. Mm -mm. I don't, I don't. And I like my life. I like where I am. I don't think it all, I don't think Aaron died so I could have a podcast. I know that's not what you're saying. You know what I mean? I don't think, I don't think it was sort of like a part of a bigger plan. And also I can look back at the time of my life and know that like I was held, I was supported, but by people. Right. And I do think that people really do want to do that for each other. Like we are really wired to want to catch somebody when they're in free fall. We do want to like lay out that thing from cartoons, that little like, you know what I'm talking about? Like from like old timey cartoons where someone Mm -hmm. needs to jump out of a burning building and they'd like mount. It's like a a bunch of people holding a trampoline, which doesn't seem safe. Yeah. But, But I think that's what people want to do for each other. That's still what I want to do for other people. And you were doing a lot of things. And I think people looking at that, or at least hearing about your story from the outside in, mm-hmm. they say, oh, you know, Nora has looks like she's been able to convert her grief mm-hmm. into some sort of purpose. She's helping people. That's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And yet you're feeling overwhelmed, burned out, like you created yeah. this sort of cage for yourself in trying to yeah. be available to everyone else. So let's just flash forward a little bit to now you're with Matthew yes. uh, a year later. And you guys have a child together. Yeah. And how did you a year later? Tell us about that working up to that moment where you yeah. realized, okay, this I gotta change. This is not this is not yeah, oh, I didn't realize that for years. I didn't realize it for right. years and years and years and years and years. And I met Matthew a year after Aaron died. And I was never gonna get married again. I didn't even want to fall in love with anyone again. It would be fine if they fell in love with me. That's their fault. I can't prevent that, obviously, but they're never going to live with me. They're never going to meet my kid. They're never going to share my life. They can come over and like kill centipedes, mow my lawn, have sex with me. End of list. (laughs) End of list. You can take me out to dinner and God bless the men in my life who, if you ever have somebody who is widowed, who is even like freshly divorced or broken up with or like starting over something in their life and you have the ability to take them out for a platonic dinner, but treat them like it's a date, pick them up, buy them dinner, order a dessert course. Three men in my life did that for me. And it meant so much to me. It meant so much to me. It really got me through, but I didn't want that. I just didn't want a romantic relationship. And a widow friend of mine, Mo, who's one of my best friends. Both our husbands died in the fall. The physical feeling of fall in the Midwest just brings it back. It was my first death anniversary. I was feeling it in my body. I literally couldn't even turn my head. Like my shoulders were so locked. I was so stressed out. And I went to Mo's backyard to burn some things, to burn some explanation of benefits from the health insurance company that I had in a garbage bag. And to just hang out. And she'd invited this guy and I didn't know that she was going to do that. And he just sort of listened 
to the two of us talk for hours, hours, hours. And I assumed maybe his wife was dead or something <laughs> like a few hours into it. I was like, what's your deal? Like, what's like, who are you? And I don't know. He was just, I thought, well, here's a guy that could take me out to dinner and have sex with me. That's what I thought. That's, <laughs> that's what I thought. Here's a guy. Here's a guy. He seems safe and kind. And, you know, he had kids. So he was only available a few nights a week, which is ideal. I was never going to be the center of his world. He had his own life. Like he knew himself. I think once you meet a person who knows themselves, you can see them coming a mile away. You know, this guy was not, he did not need someone to complete him. He did not need me. He didn't need anyone. Right. Which meant like he could genuinely be interested in someone in me because he didn't need me. He didn't need me. So unfortunately I did fall in love with him and, and, and we had a baby and we got married and we have this blended family, but I didn't have any of the realizations that you're talking about that I'm like doing too much that I'm like harming myself that I'm actually not even being that helpful to. I didn't have any of the realizations that you're talking about, about how burned out I was about the motivations behind this output, right? Which from the outside, like you mentioned, looks like it looks so good and parts of it are so good, right? They're so good. I never thought I would be able to write a book. I never thought I'd be able to write five books. I didn't think when I started my podcast, oh, this will be a full-time job someday. I literally thought, well, this will be a fun little silly thing to do. This will be a cute little thing. That'll be fun. I'll do that. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that for years. I didn't realize that probably till like 2021, 2020. Even now it's 2023. It just feels like the extended cut of 2020. I'm just worse forever in 2020 to me. You guys had that family hike that one day. Yeah, that's a wake up call. That was a wake up point. That was a wake up point. And there's a lot there, right? Like I didn't realize like how much of like things I thought were my personality the procrastination, the constant distraction, the extreme sensitivity about like criticism are ADHD. <laughs> and I'm doing a lot at this point. I'm doing all of these things. I've got this peer support group for widows that I started. I have this nonprofit that also grew into like a B Corp arm. I've got this podcast. I'm writing books. We have these four kids. I have four other jobs that I couldn't even list for you because I will say yes to anything. And our friends were visiting from Minnesota and we went on one of our favorite hikes and they have five kids. We have four kids. Our littlest one was four, I think. So we have to take two cars to the hike on the way back. Everyone's switching seats. Everyone wants to drive with like different parents and we pull up to our house and it's just like, you know, the scene from home alone when they're leaving for the airport only reverse, everyone's getting home and Mm -hmm. everyone got out of the car. I got the stuff I needed out of the trunk and I congratulated myself. You got the stuff out of the trunk that you thought you would forget. You didn't forget. You didn't forget the stuff in the trunk. Good for you. We forgot. I forgot our youngest in the car, in the back of the car. And he did not know yet how to undo his seatbelts or open a door. He was waiting for us to come back for him. For an hour. Yeah, probably an hour. Yeah, an hour, Mm -hmm. an hour. Like kids die that way. Mm -hmm. Kids die that way. 
it was winter here, but if it would have been five degrees warmer, 10 degrees warmer, like he'd be dead. He'd be dead. He'd be dead. He'd be dead. And I went outside with my friend to show her a tree in our neighborhood. Beautiful tree. It looks like the tree from Go Dogs Go, that book. It's a great tree. And I heard like, and I looked over. We're in Arizona. So all the windows in our cars are tinted very, very dark. And I thought, oh my God, he is in so much. He's playing in the car. He shouldn't be playing in the car. And I opened the door and he'd been crying and he was sweating. And he looked at me like I was his savior and not the woman who had left him there. And he said, can I get out now? And my friend and I looked at each other like, oh, fuck. Like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. And then my husband looked at me like, ooh, um, yeah. And that is what is the danger. That is the danger of being so distracted, like so disconnected from where you are, from where you are. Like, who knows? Who knows what I was doing? Like what I was saying, where my mind was. My mind was not in the backseat of the car where our youngest child it was trapped. And it's the biggest shame of my life. It's the narrowest miss of my life. Yeah. But it inspired some change. You started yeah. changing some yeah. things after that. Yeah. And I wrote about that in the book and I tell that story now because when I did tell people, you know, and I would, I told people gingerly, right? Like, there are people who will hear this and who will be like, I hate this woman. I hate this one. This woman's a horrible mother. This woman's a horrible mother. And there will be someone who hears this who thinks like, okay, it is not just me. This stuff happens. This stuff happens, right? And there's no amount of hating myself that would change it. There's no amount of self-flagellation that will somehow make that situation any different. I don't know who says it. I'm sure I could Google it, but the real apology is like changed behavior. And I did have to change. I had to change so much. I had to change so much. And what I changed was just a giant cull of what I do, of what I do and what I am available to do and where I am, which is the most important place that I can be is here. And not even just like, physically with my kids. I wasn't traveling a ton in that era, right? Like that was like the still pretty much a good lockdown era. I wasn't doing, you know, traveling and doing speaking events. I wasn't doing live podcast shows. Like I was here. I was not here. I was not here because I had made myself the central hub to a bunch of spinning wheels that did not need to keep spinning. And so I stopped doing our peer support group, I handed it over to a group of capable people who had the bandwidth to do it and wanted to do it and were in a mental place where they could handle it. I never once in all those years asked like, am I okay to do this? You know, should I still be doing this? You know, I just thought if someone asked me to do it, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And I stopped doing that. The business closed. All I was doing was two full-time jobs now. And that was enough. <laughs> like That was enough. 
that was enough. And so I stepped away from a lot of things that it really had started to feel like they were central to my identity. And it's so hard because I never want to sound like, you know, having a, having a purpose isn't important. Of course not. Of course I don't believe that. Right. Like, but there has to be like some line between your doing and your being, because if the only value that you have on this earth is, you know, so closely tethered to what you are doing for other people, the approval or the appreciation that you can get from other people, like you are just like setting yourself up for misery. And I know I'm not the only person out there who like from a young age learned that of course it feels good to be told you're doing a good job, right? It does. And it, it did. I loved doing all of those things until I didn't. And I had no connection to myself mentally to realize I really can't do this stuff anymore. I can't do all of this stuff anymore. It didn't matter how many times my therapist literally told me, it sounds like you're overwhelmed. (laughs) And it sounds like maybe you've connected these activities, these titles, these unpaying jobs so closely to your identity that you feel stuck inside of them. I was like, no, I don't know if that's it. You know, (laughs) (laughs) how are you thinking about success these days? Yeah, I think I I have it written on a board that I can see right now that no one else can see unless they walk into this office, I guess. But uh, <laughs> like, you already did it. I did it. I have everything I need. I have everything I need. It is enough. If I write no more books, if the podcast ends tomorrow, if the only a thing that I do is... And by the way, like I'm a person who... Also, and I just always want to be clear about this too, because there can be such a gap between appearance and reality. Like I'm a person who needs to work. I'm no longer living paycheck to paycheck, but I'm a person like, I need a job, you know, (laughs) like I need a job. I'm always skeptical of when you hear interviews with people who are like, yeah, it just doesn't matter. And you're like, yeah, because you're like a millionaire. Like (laughs) that's why it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, but if tomorrow... I could no longer do any of the things that I do that I really like, that I really love. I love my jobs. I love my jobs. If I could no longer do them, if I worked at an office doing an office job, name a business job, I literally could not to save my life. But if I did, I would be fine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I would be fine because that is not where I get all of my value anymore. Mm -hmm. Final question before I know your kids are coming back any minute now, but... You have a tour coming up. Yeah. And what are yeah, you most looking forward to about this this oh tour? Oh god. Like I, I'm I'm sure, do you feel this way too? It's like you make this thing, right? And it like goes off into the world and like mm-hmm. you can see it you can see, right? Like you you have a concept of numbers, right? You're like, "Okay, that's that's that many people." Like that's kind of a lot of people. But the difference between that and then seeing a person who read something you wrote responded to something, listened to something. It's so different. It's the only thing that makes the job feel real. I have to say it really is. When you meet a person, you're like, you really like you. And I remember telling someone at a meet and greet, like, oh man, I just love knowing it's you. Like, I love knowing that it's you here in Seattle, walking your dog, listening. That is so cool to me. I love live events. So we do our podcast shows. They're 
they're really good. Our podcast shows are really good. And we're doing eight cities this spring, but we're going to do it more regularly. So probably every other month we'll hit up some different cities. So we're going to be in eight this spring, which I'm really excited about. And there's always more places to go. But yeah, I just love, love, love seeing the people who make my job possible. It's so cool. It's so cool. Beautiful. We'll definitely put some information about that in the show notes. And I just thank want you. to I thank you. Any of that was, I hope any of that was coherent. I'm so sorry. No, it was editor. great. The thing is, I could go on easily for another yeah. hour, two hours, because there's so much we didn't talk about about your story that I took all these notes uh, on. Because I just, I'm so yeah. fascinated by just how these things kind of dovetail into one another, you know? Yeah. Like, and yeah, they just have to read your books. It's all in your they books. You have to read them. You have and, to read the books. Your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think we left we left the listener wanting more, and that's yeah. a good thing. <laughs> that's a good problem to have. So thank you very much for for coming on and sharing your story and bearing your soul yet again. Thank you, Light. And yet so another lovely. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I look forward to hopefully crossing paths in person one day. Oh my soon. god! Of course, of course, of course. Yes. And I have your email, so I will email you. And I'm going to go get 10 steps. That's going to be my goal. I'm going to get, I'm going to get a thousand <laughs> steps today. I'm going, to, I'm going to stand up. You have inspired me. I'm like, why am I doing this? Why? I can get up. I can literally get up. There's no one in the cubicle next to me. No one's watching to see how long I sit mm-hmm. at this computer. God. Mm-hmm. I'm um, actually going out to walk in the sun, like uh, literally. Uh, the sun just shortly came out. after this. Yeah. yeah. I'm so excited. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Nora McInerney. For more inspiration, make sure to find Nora on social media at Nora, B-O-R-E-A-L-I-S. And of course, I'll drop links to everything that we discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archive of interviews with other past guests who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can search the interviews by subject matter if you only want to hear stories about people who've taken leaps of faith, people who've overcome health challenges, people who've overcome financial struggles, and all of those various topics. You can get that list at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also see Nora and watch other past interviews on my YouTube channel. If you want to put a face to a story, just go to YouTube, search Light Watkins Podcast, and you'll see the entire playlist. And if you want to hear the raw, unedited version of our podcast conversation, you can do that on the Happiness Insiders online community, which is my online community based around cultivating happiness from the inside out. So not only will you be able to hear all of the unedited versions of my podcast if you like hearing the chit chat in the beginning and the false starts and the mistakes but you also get access to my 108 day meditation challenge my 30 day mindfulness triathlon and a bunch of other challenges and master classes for becoming the best version of you and then finally to help me bring you the best guests possible it would go a really long way if you could take 10 seconds to rate this podcast. All you do is glance down at your screen, click the name of the podcast, 
scroll down past those first handful of episodes, you'll see five blank stars. And if you found these conversations inspiring, tap the star all the way on the right and you have left a five star rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, which of course I encourage everyone to do, leave a review with one episode that you recommend a new listener should consider starting with as an introduction to this podcast. It could be the episode that had the biggest impact on you personally. Thank you in advance for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.